Bibles, if you would, please, to Galatians chapter 2. Again, once this evening, we are looking at the first 10 verses in this chapter. And we're going to be here just a while longer as we try to sort out all of these things that are here in these verses. Now, I know everybody has a Bible, don't you? Does everybody have a Bible tonight? I mean, if you come to Brian Baptist Church, you know you're supposed to bring a Bible because uh, we don't have anything else to study from, and we don't want anything else to study from but the Bible. And I don't, I don't you know, the, the Bible is so rich. There's so, so much here. It's a, it's a well that's so deep. I don't know why anyone would ever want to go to church and hear anything but the Bible. I just don't understand that. But if you look at these scriptures this evening, we're going to, um, we're not going to read the all ten verses here. We've read those a couple of times in the previous messages. So I'd like to read just part of this text. We'll, we'll read down to verse number five, which will pretty much cover where we're going to be this evening. Paul says, Then fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. I really do think Galatians is a very, very interesting book. But if you don't like arguments, then you're not going to like Galatians. And if you think that I am too negative sometimes in what I preach about and I'm always hammering away on somebody, there's no relief tonight either. So we're, we're looking here at one of Paul's most explosive letters. And he really wasn't afraid to mix it up and even to be a little sarcastic at times. Now, most of us have, I think most of you have probably been in church for a while. Uh, most of you are, of course, familiar to me. And even before perhaps you came to Berean, you were ch- attended church. And so most of us are really no strangers to argument. I mean, I, uh, uh, for the, from the time that I was very young, I was interested in the Bible. And I suppose that would be natural because I grew up in a pastor's home. And our lives centered on the Bible. It centered on our church. Everything else was just a means to further our relationship with the Lord. That's the way my dad raised me. What, what, what he did, everything was centered around our church. And so when I, was, when I was in elementary school and high school, or junior high and high school, I didn't have any friends in our part of the country there. I mean, I just didn't have any friends that didn't have some sort of religious affiliation. I mean, everybody that I knew knew something about church and had been to church and it seems odd to me sometimes living in a community like this when there are people that have never even stepped foot inside of a church. That, that was one of the strangest things that I experienced when I moved here, that there are so many people that don't know anything at all about the Bible. And some of the very basic stories that we tell three- and four-year-olds in Sunday school class, there are people here that have no idea what those things are about. When I first started teaching the Sunday morning form class, that was uh, about 14 years ago, one of the adults in the class raised their hand and asked me, 
what is this story about knowing the ark? What's that all about? And I thought that I was, you know, I was preparing to teach a class where I thought we would go into the deep things of the Word of God and have hard questions. But I learned very quickly that not everybody has a Bible background like I have, not, not in this part of the country. And I don't say that to shame anybody, not at all, because not everybody grew up the same way that I grew up. I mean, I suppose that if you, your parents were, were a geneticist or something, that you would know a whole lot more about genomes and DNA replication than I know. So I grew up with the Bible, and that was just a regular part of my communication with my friends. And since I like to argue... It didn't take long for me to get into arguments when the subject turned to Bible topics. Now, when I was in high school, many of the people that I went to school with, uh, their parents either worked for or were associated with the Asbury Theological Seminary. That's an interdenominational school. It's one of the, one of the uh, one, actually one of the best schools as far as the college there itself, it's one of the best in the country, and the seminary is highly regarded as well. But I know it as a place that is a, I would say, the haunt. Even though it's interdenominational, it's kind of the haunt of Wesleyan Methodist. And so they were just, th- those kids that their families were associated with that, they were just an endless source of arguments over Arminian theology and especially on the subject of eternal security. And so we argued all the time about these subjects. And you can imagine that being in a religiously saturated society, like the Apostle Paul was, that there would constantly be religious arguments going on. And there was all these competing religions, and there was none that, com- that was more competitive than the Jews and Christians. And so there's always these arguments, and, and you put on top of that that Christianity has its roots in Judaism, and the Jews are thinking that what the Christians are trying to do is get rid of all of our time-honored traditions. You can imagine the arguments that developed. So you had some Jews that were pretend converts to Christianity, and what they wanted to do was to hold on to their uh, certain facets of their, of their old religion while at the same time claiming that they were converted to Christ. And those are the ones that Paul had the most trouble with. It was easier to deal with the pagans and deal with just a traditional Jew in the synagogues than it was to deal with somebody who was a crossover. The crossovers are hard to deal with because they embraced a great deal of what the apostles were teaching, but they missed the most basic and fundamental teaching of all, which was justification by faith alone. Now, that's the core issue. That's the core issue that we've been discussing. The argument is over justification and whether the old Jewish law of circumcision has any bearing on the Christian faith. And I find it quite interesting that that, that this is still an argument today in a different way, that some of the most excellent people, uh, Bible teachers, and are really straight on their theology of salvation, and yet they're confused on the issue of whether baptism is something that replaced circumcision. There are people who, uh, most, many of the Protestants believe that baptism took the place as a Christian rite, a ceremony, a covenant sign. So what the covenant theologians believe, it's a, a covenant sign that uh, God gave to Christians just like he gave the Jews the seal of circumcision. Now, Paul had to deal with something a little bit more difficult than that. Now, he could have dealt with that easily enough, but 
he had to deal with these pretended converts who thought that circumcision is salvation. And whenever you try to add something to, uh, to, to faith or substitute anything for faith, then you have made that thing become the qualifying essential factor of salvation. And this is why Paul writes in chapter 3. He says in verse 2, This only what I learn of you, receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? And so that's the core issue Paul's dealing with. What does it take to be justified with God? Now, the second and third parts of your outline are, are, the, are these, because the comparison of the timeline and the companions for the journey. And I'm not going to deal with those tonight anymore. So you can go back to the previous messages and learn where those, these things fit into the narrative that we have in the book of Acts. And if you're really excited about things, you can relive the previous messages by CD and you can learn all the background of the traveling companions and all of that. Uh, but we're not going to talk about those things tonight, but we're going to move on to something else here because we have so much to cover in these, in these ten verses of this chapter. So fourthly, this is our fourth point tonight, and that is the command to travel. The theological controversy swirling around Paul over this issue of circumcision was really starting to take its toll on the Galatian churches. There are two contentious factors. You have the Judaizers on one side, and you have the Apostle Paul on the other side, and stuck in the middle of those were the Galatian converts that were confused about whether they did or did not need to be circumcised. Now, that's a perplexing problem. So how's Paul going to resolve this problem to the satisfaction of the Galatian converts? I mean, here he is in in danger of having his ministry destroyed by the lies and deceit of these, what I called the crossover people just a moment ago, the Judaizers, and it seemed the only way that he would be able to settle the issue was to go to Jerusalem and sort it out with the original apostles. Get what they have to say and bring that back to these people who thought that the apostles in Jerusalem were the ones that could answer all their questions. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to see that this may not have been a desirable option for Paul. In fact, I don't think it was. Because what had he spent years away from Jerusalem doing? Well, he spent that time receiving revelation from God without any interference of any other individuals. And the main proof that he relied on that his doctrine came directly from God was the lack of conferences, visiting the conferences and speaking to the apostles. That's his argument. So he didn't rely on the apostles at Jerusalem for his doctrine, and neither did he seek their approval for it. Now, we're going to see a little bit later that the language of this section indicates that Paul was not a little bit irritated by the assertion that he was less than apostle than the ones that were in Jerusalem. And he was irritated by them saying or thinking that he was subject to their authority. Now, he conducts himself honorably as far as the apostles are concerned. He's not irritated with them. He's irritated with the people who keep claiming this and causing all the problems. So there may have been some reluctance for Paul to resolve the issue by going to Jerusalem. Folks, this is why we have an all-wise God. This is why we need him to solve problems for us and to give us the best course of action. Because we don't always know it. God sees around corners. God can see the beyond the bend and the road. And so he had a planned outcome here for Paul, and this trip to Jerusalem would end up vindicating Paul in the best possible way. 
So we really have to thank God that that's the way that he works in our lives because we face decisions sometimes that we just don't know what to do. And we just simply have to turn those things all over to the Lord and let him tell us how to proceed. Can't see the outcome. We have no ability to forecast the future. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, he said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now I think about those verses, and that ended up being a part of my prayers last night before I went to bed. Lord, please relieve me of some of the worries that I have. It does no good for me to worry about things when all things are in your hands. And I have to learn that as much as anybody else. It's difficult sometimes not to dwell on problems and, and, and just place everything into the hands of the Lord and ask him to give us direction. So the proper course of action is to leave things in God's hand. Let him work out the details. Now notice how this reluctancy and uncertainty of what Paul should do is immediately cleared up. He says, And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So it was revealed to Paul that he needed to go to this conference in Jerusalem, and that would calm the situation. And Paul took that revelation as God's command to go in, in spite of his reluctance to do so and his personal distaste for what it would mean to him. Now think about what the Judaizers would now say when Paul goes to Jerusalem. Here's what they would say. They would say, well, there goes Paul. He's been summoned by the apostles in Jerusalem to appear before the tribunal. They're going to check him out on his doctrine, and he's going up there, and he's going to get his theology straightened out. And so now, finally, he recognizes that he must submit to their authority. And you can just see them telling those lies and going through that among the Galatian people. They're constantly casting doubt on him. And so Paul makes it very clear as he writes this letter that he went to Jerusalem by revelation from God, not because he'd been summoned by the other apostles. It's not their demand that he is the reason that he went. So he doesn't go to submit to their authority. He even says later that the Jerusalem, uh, the apostles in Jerusalem deferred to him on certain issues, that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he said this is the reason that Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised. Well, we might ask then, how did Paul receive the revelation? Well, not every... Not every experience, not everything that God says to people is a Damascus Road experience. You're not going to get those kinds of things. Well, we probably none of us have ever had one, anything like that. And Paul, that wasn't a common occurrence for Paul either. When Paul was called to be the first missionary, the Bible tells us how that he was chosen. The church at Antioch, the Holy Spirit spoke to the church and said, separate Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. And so what Paul was supposed to do was not only revealed to him, but it was revealed to the church as well. When he was in Arabia, I doubt very seriously that he received any or very much at all, if any, of his revelation in a Damascus Road-type experience. And so the revelation may have come to Paul and others that were with him. Maybe it came in a moment of private prayer. We don't know about that. But Paul got the picture that he was supposed to go and when God tells you to go and you go, the outcome is always best for you and always glorifying to God. So Paul went. And we're going to hold on for just a while as to what happened to that in, in that 
meeting in Jerusalem. We're going to talk about quite a bit about that in messages later on to see how that turned out. But I want to talk to you now on our fifth point, which is the controversy over doctrine. The controversy over doctrine. Now, some time ago I told you that uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what the Judaizers believed. Now, we already know that circumcision is in the picture, that they said that the Galatian converts need to be circumcised to be saved, and this is what Paul is so adamantly opposed to. And the fact that Paul was having success in the ministry and that he was traveling around with this uncircumcised Gentile named Titus and they were still winning many people to the Lord, that that was just a victory for Paul. It was a great argument against what the Judaizers were saying. But I think it's interesting to look at this and see, are there other issues that are involved? And, and this might be somewhat surprising, but at least on the service, it looks like what many people would think it's just a minor issue. If everything else is close, then why not just compromise on this? And it's a little insignificant problem, and we can all just hold hands and sing kumbaya. It's sort of like that. I like my argument with the Wesleyan Methodists on eternal security. Why argue over that? Is that really an important issue? I mean, if we agree on so much else, why do we spend our time on that? And let's just leave that alone. And I remember Brian told me about the pastor of the Smoke and Mirrors Church up in up in uh, Santa Rosa when he asked him about eternal security, and the pastor said to him, "Does it matter?" Well, does it matter? Is, is, is circumcision a problem if everything else is fairly close? Well, might interest you to know, as far as we can tell, there aren't any other doctrinal fights that are going on with Paul and the Judaizers. I mean, if, if they had been straight-up unconverted uh, Jews, then they would have been in the synagogue and not in the church. And if they didn't look like Christians in some way and act like Christians in some degree and know something about Christian doctrine and something about the things of the faith, then there never would have been an argument in the first place. Paul would have just dismissed that and everybody would have been fine. But these are wannabe Christians that marginally pass the smell test. I mean, they've got just enough to make them look like Christians, but there's something that's off. And as far as we know, these Judaizers were straight on the facts of the gospel because we don't find any argument here about the deity of Christ. Nothing here at all about the death of Christ on the cross. Nobody's talking about whether Christ was really resurrected from the grave or, or anything about the, the marvelous benefits that come to believers because of the incarnation and the humility and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure these people said, our sins are forgiven because Jesus died on the cross. But the real question that's involved here is how do we receive the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross? And that's where this controversy explodes and Paul anathematizes them and he pronounces a curse on them for preaching a doctrine that came straight out of hell. And the answer to, to Paul's anathema of these Judaizers is the same as the answer to this question. Why aren't Roman Catholics Christians? The answer is the same. And the problem is, the whole problem here, is how do we actually receive the benefits of Christ's death? Now, we talked about that in the form class a few weeks back. And the question comes to our mind is, well, if the Roman Catholics believe in the death of Christ and they believe in the cross, and they believe in the blood, and they believe in the resurrection, and they believe in the incarnation, and they believe that Christ died to atone for sin, 
then why aren't they Christians? I mean, they believe exactly as we do, don't they? Well, as we... Sometimes I give away sermons in the Sunday morning forum class, and so this may sound a little bit familiar to you, but let's concentrate for a minute on this vital point of the blood atonement. Now, the Roman Catholic Church says that original sin is washed away by baptism, and so they baptize infants because the sooner that you baptize them, the better. You get rid of the original sin. They believe that sins are forgiven in the Mass, and they believe that sins are forgiven in the confessional. And they believe that sins are forgiven by acts of penance. And some sins are forgiven after you die. You go to purgatory, and then you spend some time there paying for the ones that you didn't get taken care of while you were in this life. So you have all these transactions that are going on that's like a store for buying and selling forgiveness, which, by the way, Pope Benedict XVI just confirmed not long ago is okay. And so... With all these ways for sins to be forgiven, then what is left for the blood of Christ to do? Why did Christ die on the cross if the Roman Catholic Church can make all these commercial transactions out of selling forgiveness to poor, confused people that buy what they're selling? Why? what's, What's the blood of Christ all about? I mean, if they can do all those things and have sins forgiven in so many different ways, then what did the blood of Christ do? Now, what you have here, actually, the whole system is built on works, transactions. And what is that? A perversion of the gospel, according to Paul. Now, that's the conclusion that Martin Luther came to after he, after he had read Galatians and studied that, and God revealed it to him. It was the abuse of the sale of indulgences and this understanding of what Christ actually does and the justification of sinners. And it was all about the same problems that the Judaizers have. And circumcision is just another method of buying forgiveness. And that leaves the blood of Christ worthless for anything. Now, there's another thing about their system. It's a system of bondage. People become slaves to Catholicism. They become slaves to the sacraments and slaves to the tradition of the church. They believe the Pope has the keys to the kingdom of God. The magisterium is what controls entrance into heaven. And so people become mesmerized by that system and what they're afraid to cross it in any way because the church is liable to just keep them from getting into heaven. And so from their birth and baptism at the very beginning all the way through their life right down to the very end in the giving of the last rites, who controls it all? They're slaves to Roman Catholicism or as I would say, they're slaves to men in dresses and funny hats. Well, is that different from what we believe? I mean, are are you relying on me to permit you to get into heaven? Do I stand between you and God like a priest does in the Roman Catholic Church? Are you able to go to God and be led by God without coming to confer with me? And then how are you saved? Were you saved by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone? Or do you have a, a checklist here and you just go down here and check off all the works of penance that you've been given to do and make sure that the list is complete. Is that the way that you're saved? Folks, that's the difference between us and them. What it is is liberty versus bondage. It's freedom in Christ versus the obedience to the law. Now, what I see in salvation is that I've been set free from the law because Jesus paid the penalty that I owed to God. And I don't have any righteousness, but his righteousness that's given to me by my faith in him. And that's the controversy. 
Same thing that you have with Roman Catholicism. I mean, the Judaizers are prison wardens. Verse 4 says, And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. You see, the Judaizers wanted everybody to be under the law. They can't stand freedom. They, they can get everything right, it seems, but this, that going to heaven is a mixture of grace and works. And if you want to be totally transparent about it, it's more works than it is grace. Because the Apostle Paul said, you try to mix the two and you can't have grace anymore. He said, you actually don't have works anymore because there are two things that simply don't mix. Now that is recognizable to us. I think that that's really recognizable to us. We can spot this huge glaring difference between us and them because they have the funny hats and they have the fancy robes and they have the crucifixes and the idols and the mariolatry and the mass and the hocus-pocus that goes with that. And yet in spite of that, Satan comes along and he confuses people so they can't see the forest for the trees. You know, there, there's an elderly couple that visits here every now and then, and um, they, 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 they came to church, and one day at the door, I was shaking their hands as they went out, and they said, last week we went to the Catholic church. And they said, we like to visit there too because it's all the same. And I didn't take that too well. I mean, you don't want to tell me while we're standing at the door that we're just the same as them. And so I took a few minutes there at the door to explain to them the huge difference between justification by faith alone and justification by works. And I told them this is the difference between truth and lies. It's the difference between a gospel that saves and one that condemns. Now, I didn't have a lot of time to talk to them about that, and so they just looked at me like a deer in the headlights when I was going through that. And so you know what they did? Well, they decided to go more there than they do here. And if you want to look into this thing just a little bit further, you'll find this to be true, that in many other denominations, they just have a different variation of the same problem. You see, there's a reason why we keep the name Baptist on the sign outside. And some, in some ways, that can be a problem to us because they're, the name Baptist has been hijacked by so many churches that it's plain old wishy-washy and don't stand for anything. I mean, there's several conventions of Baptists that that the membership is lost as Adam's goose. They don't, they don't know anything about what we're teaching. And, and so we keep the name Baptist, though, because for anybody that desires to look into the history of the Baptist, then they'll find that we stand for a regenerate church membership. And they'll find that we believe in being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, by faith in him and him alone. And they'll find that we believe by salvation, in salvation by grace through faith. And we don't believe any rites or rituals or sacraments or anything like that as a part in our, in our justification. So is this really a small matter? Is circumcision just a slight variation and it's not worth the time and trouble to argue about it? Is it not worth a, a long, hot walk to Jerusalem to finally get this thing settled? You know, for the pastor who says, well, eternal security, does that matter? Well, it doesn't matter if you're convinced that all you need to do is say you love Jesus. Does it matter if you can be saved and kept saved by your own efforts? And it doesn't matter if you have no idea what the grace of God is. You know, some people are more charitable on this than I am. And they think, well, you know, we're, they're all Christians. It's just they're just a little bit confused on a few issues. You know, my friends that argued against me when I was in high school about eternal security, they were convinced that they were talking to a brick wall. And, and they said, we're saved by grace and 
But they also said, if we're not careful and we do the wrong thing, that we can lose it. And my answer to that is, you have no idea what the grace of God is about. You don't have any any idea about how we're justified with God. You can't be saved if you're a legalist. You can't be saved and say, well, look at that. You know, I've been circumcised or I've been baptized and, or anything else, and now my journey's complete. Now I'm bound for heaven. And you know the problem with people that, that trust circumcision or baptism or confessionals or whatever? They have to keep looking over their shoulder and wondering if they've ever done enough. Do they do enough? Did they work enough? Did they live it enough? Did they pray enough? Did they tithe enough? Did they sow enough seeds? They never know because the accumulation of everything that they do never gives them the assurance they've ever done enough. They have to keep going. How will they know when enough is enough? See, that's the difference in salvation by grace and salvation by anything else. Grace is when Jesus tells me or God tells me Jesus paid it all. And that's how I know that enough is enough. And there's nothing left for me to do. And so I sing like the song says, In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. See, that's what you call freedom. Now, here's another problem, though. How do you know that people who say that they agree with you on this and they understand freedom in Christ, how do you know when they really don't understand? Well, we have that in the Bible as well because that's another problem. And that, the way that we know it, is because people use their freedom as an excuse to sin. In the fifth chapter, Paul said, For brethren, ye have called, you have been called under liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now, this is the complaint of the Judaizers then. If Paul is right, and if we can throw out the law as a means of justification, then what do we have? They said, we have lawlessness. And you know what happens? There are many people that say they're Christians and they prove that the Judaizers are right because what they do is they say, well, we've been saved by grace and we've been set free from the law and we can't lose our salvation and so now we'll go do anything that we want to do. And so you find them in places where they shouldn't be. You see them talking like they shouldn't talk. And you just watch their irreverence for the things of God. Some look like they just picked themselves up off a curb downtown or just been to a, just dance in a burlesque show somewhere. And it's all because of this, Christian liberty. That's a problem. I mean, people can whoop it up for sure and say, oh, I love Jesus. Watch how they live and see the contempt they have for holiness and the glory of God. You look at their lives and look what they do and see see how they act and you find out for sure whether they really understand what Christian liberty is all about. It's not an excuse to sin and if people think it is then they don't understand grace either. So let me read something that W. Criswell wrote and this is really I thought spot on on this issue. He says Paul envisions three possible lifestyles. One legalism which he vigorously rejects in this epistle. Lawlessness the only alternative, according to the legalists, which he also vehemently rejects. And three, that was the second one. Third one is the is spirit-directed living, which he enthusiastically endorses. Liberty is freedom from exterior rule, but this freedom presupposes new and greater responsibilities for the one who's liberated. The believer is no longer ruled by the law. God's Holy Spirit reigns in his heart, and the believer's responsibilities are far more profound as a result. You understand that? 
You'd be far better off to try to live by the law and become a legalist and say all these things that I do will get me to heaven as to have the Holy Spirit ruling in your heart and, and trying to follow him. Do you see which has the greater responsibility? I mean, you have hugely more responsibilities by having the Holy Spirit live in your heart than you do by just having a written copy of God's law. When the Holy Spirit comes to live, you, he's in control now. He's in control of everything that you do, and you have to surrender yourself to him. So these are some things that have to be seriously considered. You may be somebody that says, no way do I, do I believe in keeping commandments to be saved. And the real interpretation of that is, no way do I believe in keeping commandments. And one's just as wrong as the other, and both will get you in just as much trouble. So where are we going with all this? Well, believe it or not, I am headed towards the conclusion of these ten verses. But when we go through this, there's this this cornucopia of all of these truths that are here. There's a reason for every statement that's written in the text, and it accentuates the problems that we find still today in the modern church. Now, for Paul, it's people that are basically right, and they agree with just about everything that he said, And they differed on what some people think is a minor point of doctrine, but the minor point turns out to be the most important pillar of the Christian faith. And the interesting thing about this is is that Paul recognized that he could not compromise on it. And you know something? The Judaizers were smart enough to realize that too. They knew what they were talking about. They had a completely different system from Paul, and that's why you have a clash all the time. Always the fight. So... Their protestations end up causing Paul to take action to go to Jerusalem to prove once and for all that he and the apostles in Jerusalem are on the same page on doctrine. And what comes out of their meeting is important affirmation of faith alone as the means of our justification. Now, next time, we're going to get just a little bit of a taste of that conference in Jerusalem. And then after that, a couple of weeks down the road, when we get, we're going to look extensively at Acts chapter 15 and say what happened in that conference. What did they talk about and how did they resolve this issue? Now, the sad thing about all of this that I'm talking to you about tonight, the frightening thing about it is the fight's still going on. After 2,000 years, we're still fighting over this. And the reason that we have a sign out front that says who we are is because that identifies where we stand on the battleground. And that's why we don't get rid of the name. People need to know where we stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look in your word again tonight. Uh, we, we thank you for the truths that are found here. We thank you that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone because there's no way that we could ever save ourselves or ever hope that we could be right with you. And so we thank you that Jesus Christ has done it all for us. And may that be the gospel that we give to every person that we know. Bless our time together and our fellowship as we leave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's all